Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello and welcome to another special episode of A Million Other Choices. As always, I am your host, Kim. As I start to near my one year anniversary of this podcast, I wanted to reflect for you on some of my goals. Originally, when I started this project, I I really didn't expect to have many listeners and that I would just be telling crime stories that interested me to maybe like five or six people a week. And as my listenership grew, um, quite frankly, to my amazement and gratitude, I asked myself, like, what did I want to accomplish with this? And it came down to two things. Number one, I want to learn and bring you along for my learning journey. Why is it sometimes manslaughter and not murder? What are the challenges faced by Indigenous communities when it comes to the missing and murdered women? Why is it difficult to get women out of abusive relationships? Uh, What are some red flags? How to hone your instincts, etc., etc. So that is why I don't just bring you the story, but I also try and dig a little bit deeper to some of the issues behind the murders that I'm covering. And number two, and probably the most important for me, is to try in any way that I can to humanize the victims and their families left behind. By telling their story, I hope that it's kind of a way of keeping them around even for 20 minutes or so, and to make you aware of their stories so that you can see them for the people that they were before their tragedy. And of course, to do that in as respectful a way as I can so that no family member ever has to stumble across my podcast about their person and have to say, you know, why did you say that? Or how dare you or what have you. So far, I've been very lucky and have had positive interactions with families. Anyways, one thing that I noticed in my journey is how little attention is paid to other people that are so important to these stories. The the poor man out for just a daily walk with his dog that finds a body of a young woman, or the constable that's never worked homicide a day in his life and has to walk into an apartment where there's a body of a decomposing man, the prosecutors that have to work late nights putting together the cases to lock up these bad guys and they have stories too. And on my bucket list, which I will admit is a rather eclectic and unusual list of some random items like visiting a haunted house, watching a Baptist choir, and trying to go vegan for a week, 
some of which I've managed to do successfully and some not so much. But one of the biggies before I even had a podcast was to actually talk to somebody that worked for a living in homicide. Well, having a podcast with listeners, thank you again, lets me do stuff like that. So I had the amazing opportunity to sit down with Calgary's own Detective Dave Sweet, who is a veteran homicide detective here, and talk to him about not just his work as a detective, but about his own personal journey a bit. He also wrote a book in 2018, which I highly recommend that you buy on Amazon. It's called Skeletons in My Closet, Life Lessons of a Homicide Detective. And it is written with the help of Sarah Graham, who's a traditional knowledge facilitator for Indigenous communities. So we're going to talk about that a bit, as well as a program that you're going to hear me mention of Hope's Cradle. And now that's an option for young women and girls who are struggling to surrender their baby to a like a fire hall in a safe manner. And I know that sounds very morbid, but Hope's Cradle is a really important initiative to prevent the all too familiar baby found in a dumpster that can and has happened. Um, what I really love about Detective Sweet is his connection to the community that he has. When talking to him, I'm I'm not sure if you'll be able to hear it in his voice, but he just really lights up when talking about some of his community efforts he's made, particularly with Hope's Cradle and Gems for Gems. So this is going to be a two-part episode, just to make it a little bit more digestible. There's a lot of stuff that we talked about, and it's all super interesting. So I didn't want to make a really long episode, because I know sometimes people look at the timestamp and think, ugh, it's too long. Also, my podcast hosting service inserts ads every 10 minutes after the first 20 minutes of an episode. Uh, so I wanted to have a little bit more control over that. Now, Detective Dave Sweet, he's not at all what I expected. I actually don't really know what I expected. I mean, I know from talking to him on the phone a little bit beforehand that he wasn't going to be like some hardened, bitter, uptight guy in a suit that you see in the movies or like Matthew McConaughey and true detective, like chain smoking and drinking beer. I really didn't know what I, what to expect, but he was friendly and outgoing with a very cheery nature. He's currently donning a very well-groomed beard with little speckles of gray in it. He's got quite the green thumb and his patio actually reminds me of like a spa in the volcanic mountains of Bali. His house was impeccably decorated, which I discovered he did all by himself. Uh, it's a, it's very modern. It's a, it's a mix of these modern touches, touches with some classics and a, a touch of whimsical as well. It's, it's funny. It has polished concrete floors with gray walls and could seem really cold and institutional, but the artwork that he has and the plants and his choice of fabrics and texture really gives it a warmth that you wouldn't expect. And you can really see his connection to family in his home in the way that he has used photos and old news articles that serve as both art and personal reminders of his own history. You can see that he loves Doctor Who and Star Wars and is headed out to play in his hockey league later after our talk. So he's not all murder and death. Um, Detective Sweet has this aura of light around him that I think our city is just so lucky to have um, to bring some light into the darkness that is homicide. I genuinely enjoyed our conversation and I feel so honored to have been invited to his home um, and can now knock another thing off my bucket list. I hope you enjoy my conversation with homicide detective Dave Sweet. 
much for taking time to, to talk to me because I know you guys are extremely busy. This year has seems to be worse than usual. It's this year has been I don't know, it's been uh yeah, no, it has been a I won't say an exceptional year in terms of the number of files, but we seem to be getting kind of clusters of files. So you'll you go a few weeks without anything and then you'll get two or three in a week. We had Which two is- two packed this past week. Two new investigation. So one of my goals in wanting to talk to you is to sort of humanize the work of being a homicide detective mm. because I think that it's very easy for us that are in the true like true crime junkies, you know, that, right. that get into that. I think it's very easy for us to do armchair detective work, right? Right. Why didn't they talk to this person and why didn't they know this? And that's why I want to sort of take out some of those myths and some of the challenges that you deal with in your work. And one one thing that I noticed, having a family member that's a victim of homicide, is I went to the preliminary trial, which I can't talk about. But when I saw people like constables who maybe don't work in in homicide directly, and when they would testify and all that, the effect right. that these crimes have on so many people, and like you, you have family of your own, and, right? Um, and I think that sometimes gets lost, that um, we think about the victim and have a lot of compassion mm. for them and for their family, but we forget sometimes that this, it, everybody's a human being that has to touch these cases mm-hmm. from the prosecutor. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, as a detective, there's a lot of pressure on you from the family to get the person. So I'll start with the really easy questions, the ones you've probably heard a million times, how long you've been with the CPS, and then how you kind of started as a homicide detective, how long you've been doing that. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories? Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Sure. So uh, I began my career in November of 1998. So I am in my 23rd, I guess I'm in my 24th year with the Calgary Police Service. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, I started out like everybody else does. Uh, I drove around uh, in a police car answering calls for service, answering uh, 911 calls or emergency calls for service. And I did that for almost six years. I had a brief little stint in a general investigations unit. I investigated uh, breaking down for about nine months. In 2004, I uh, put in for a transfer to our drug unit. And uh, I spent from 2004 till 2007 working on a drug undercover street team. And uh, then through that experience, I was involved in one... uh, sort of significant project team, I guess, that was targeting a uh, group of um, gangsters in the city. Mm. And uh, that's probably where I first 
kind of really uh, cut my teeth into like more of the major type investigations. And uh, I was promoted in uh, 2008. And then I went back to this guns and gangs team that I had sort of uh, began this progress yeah. with. And then I was transferred into homicide in 2009. So as it stands right now, I think we're not a hundred percent sure, but I think it's getting more and more recognized. I'm probably the longest serving in homicide. Uh, yeah. In the, in the history of the 137 years of the Calgary police service. Oh, wow. wow. So typically the shelf life of a homicide investigator historically has been about three to four years. Yeah. Well, just because it's difficult on you. Well, and I think people have um, aspirations to kind of move through their career in different ways. And, and some people, you know, we lose people to um, usually promotion, uh, sometimes just to attrition. Right. Mm. And then for some, it's not quite what they were hoping it would be. So mm. it's a bit of everything. A lot of our uh, people that come into our unit, they're coming in in their 15th year, 16th year within policing. Mm -hmm. And so they just, you know, they get closer and closer to the retirement date yeah. uh, while they're in there. And to me, I would think that homicide would be the promotion. That would be the pinnacle of your career because I know that a lot of people who work in policing, they don't want the desk job. Right. Um, so you would think that they would want to stick it out. But if you say, like, it's not what they kind of expected in their mind. And, I mean, there is a there is a huge uh, price to pay when you're in this unit. Mm -hmm. And um, I do think that for some people, there's just not an interest. Like they might be interested in the work. Yeah. But the on-call... Mm. And the um, the long hours, like when a new investigation comes in, uh, isn't for everybody. Especially, you know, some families with and some officers with young children and stuff. Yeah, I think find it particularly challenging. Yeah, to balance all of those. When a new investigation comes in, um, the, the very first thing that's done is there's the assignment of a primary investigator. So the story that's going to lead the investigation. Now, is that somewhat random, or is that based on caseloads? No, it's yeah, you know, it's sort of like whose turns next, uh, and a little bit on caseload, and it is actually also sort of predetermined before the event even happens, hmm. which I think surprises some people. But um, when a new 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 investigation comes in, uh, we've already kind of predetermined who the next primary investigator is going to be. Yeah. So we know right now, today, if the next case comes in, we know who's going to be that primary. Now, we don't know what kind of investigation they're going to get. Mm -hmm. It could be anything from a, a shooting uh, to a domestic incident to a child death. Like yeah. We don't know what, yeah. what, what, what they will get, um, but uh, they will be the assigned person. And then... When you're in that role, um, another thing that people would think is happening is the primary investigator is, I mean, they're leading the charge for sure. Mm -hmm. But a good part, a, a huge part of their, their sort of the first few days of an investigation, they're in a briefing room. Mm -hmm. And they're not even out doing anything. Like they are, I call them puzzle piece builders. Or the puzzle builder, I pardon me. 
And we as an investigative team that are supporting the primary, and we all do because we all take turns being the primary, sure. um, we're out collecting the pieces of the puzzle. So as a primary investigator, what will end up happening is, is that you, when you start a new investigation, there'll be a whole bunch of things that you can send your investigative team out to go and collect. Mm -hmm. And when they come back with that information, it will set in, in, uh, it will set up for the next round of things that need to be done. Okay. So let, let me give you an example, Kim. Um, you know, you're investigating the, uh, Somebody calls and says they found the body of a woman in a home. Okay. So uh, that's what we know. When we get to the home, um, the officers notice that, uh, um, you know, yeah, there is a deceased female inside and it's suspicious. So the homicide unit is contacted. Say I'm assigned as the primary investigator. So once I'm assigned as the primary investigator, um, I'll have a whole investigative team there sitting in a briefing room and I'm going to send everybody else to do different jobs. Mm -hmm. So I might say to you, Kim, I need you to go to the scene. I might send Lacey to the autopsy and I might send uh, Lee uh, to do the next of kid notification. So I send all, th all three of you out. You're my puzzle piece collectors and you're going to come back with the information. When you come back from the scene, you're going to say, okay, no signs for a century. Um, clearly, uh, um, this this girl was was uh, uh, brutally murdered. Talked to a neighbor, a nosy neighbor around the corner. She said that she saw a red car sitting on the driveway right around the time that we think this occurred. Okay, thanks, Kim, for that information. Lacey comes back from her autopsy and says, yep, yeah. uh, medical examiner said, yeah, multiple injuries. And we absolutely have no doubt that, you know, whoever did this was very, very angry. And then Lee, who's gone out and done the next of kin, is going to come back and he's going to say, David went out and did the next of kin notification. And this is what I learned. She had been using dating apps. Mm -hmm. um, she had met a guy online at one point in time, according to her mom, that gave her the creeps. He drove like a red chef cavalier or something like that. Yeah. Right. So all this information comes back into me as the primary investigator. I set my next course of action. Yeah. So now I think the next thing that I would probably do in that scenario was try and identify who this guy is. So I might say to you, Kim, I need you to try to find the victim's phone at the scene. Let's figure out what apps, what dating apps she was yeah. using. Let's get that stuff over to the tech crimes unit. Um, Lacey, I need you to start doing some checks work with the crime analyst. Let's see if we can't dig up Red Chef Cavaliers. Uh, Lee, with that information that you have about the Red Chef Cavalier, I need you to go out and start collecting video in the area. Keep particular mention or mind of the Red Chef Cavalier. Yeah. Investigations stop and we stop working when the information coming in stops. Right. So if I send all three of you out, same scenario, and you come back and say, I went to the scene and no signs of forced entry. And yeah, it was, it's, it's particularly violent. Lacey comes back and says, went to the autopsy. Yeah, particularly violent. And Lee comes back and says, talk to mom. Um, mom's been estranged from her daughter for however long, doesn't know anything about her friends, doesn't know what she was going on doing. Where do I go with that? Yeah. Where do I go with that? And um, 
certainly, I mean, somebody listening will say, well, you could do this, this, and this, but this is just a a demonstration of how it happens. So within the first eight to 10 hours, typically we have a pretty good idea or, you know, a sense on if this thing is going to become a protracted investigation, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's going to take months and months and months to solve, or if it's going to be something that's going to be able to be solved relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And within all of this, the one thing that doesn't exist is uh, who the victim is in life or was in life has nothing to do. There's no no bearing on whether investigation will be short or protracted. It has to do with the type of information that's coming in. So where we run ourselves into trouble is say we're, um, uh, say our victim is from uh, uh, a community where maybe the police aren't trusted. Well, that ultimately affects the type of information that's coming back into sure. us, which makes the, the, the uh, investigation harder to yeah. forward. If our victim is, say, from a uh, organized crime group or is involved with a lot of shady people, uh, that makes our investigations much more difficult because right. the amount of information coming in isn't is, is going to be less than adequate for us to solve it. Right. And and that can go to some of the sort of the preconceived notions that some people have that some cases are just more or less important. You know, like somebody like Taylor, she's a white girl who comes from a good family, blah, blah, blah. Again, you're going to get more information because the relationships were close, whereas, you know, someone who may be living their life as a sex worker, um, who maybe they, she hasn't even been reported missing, is going to take much longer to... There's, good, there's so many more challenges to those kinds of cases. It's it, not that you're not trying. Right. It's There's just the challenges there, there. There can be. And, you know, I'm not I'm not here to say that I don't think that bias can creep in at different points in time. I mean, I think everybody is human and we're sort of programmed sure. to have some biases, right? However, what I can say um, unequivocally is, is that there's never been a time in an investigation where we haven't um, accepted information yeah, about yeah. what has occurred. Yeah. Like we don't close the door and say, no, we don't want any more information on this because mm-hmm. we're not interested in solving it. Yeah. Um, and that is not something that ever happens. Yeah. And so this kind of all steps into sort of the next sort of piece to all of this when it comes to homicide investigation or any kind of crime and the safety of communities. It kind of comes back to a principle of a fellow by the name of uh, Robert Peel. He uh, was sort of considered the grandfather of policing, I guess, and he had these principles of policing. And one of his principles, one of Peel's principles, was that um, the police are the public and the public are the police. But the police are paid full time attention to the adherence of the law. Right. But it doesn't take away your responsibility as a member of the public to also step in and be the police when you need to be the police, when you're called to do that, when you're called and asked to come forward with information. This is a concept that if we lose this completely within our communities, uh, our case, 
our, our sulfates on our cases will go drastically down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is why it's really important from a, um, I, in my opinion, and all, all of these are my opinions, right? Yeah. I don't, they're not representative of the organization I work for, sure. but it is why it's so important that we continue to work with communities, all communities to try and develop that trust. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't have it, we are going to, um, when those communities are affected by violence and violent crime and things of mm-hmm. that nature, we are not going to have the opportunity to uh, solve those cases properly. And in turn, it propagates this belief yeah. that we don't care. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Well, I see sometimes, too, what you're saying about community getting more involved. I've covered a number of cases where neighbors heard things. They heard, they heard things, and they didn't, they didn't call anybody because they either didn't want to get involved or they figured, oh, they, don't, they won't come, they won't do anything. You know? and, and you're right, it's a community until, we, until all the communities come together. Right. Um, it's gonna it's gonna be more difficult, and I know that the last two years have been challenging. I think for policing in general, that there's there's too much stuff out there about people saying that they're not trusted in that. And I feel the way that you do that. Um, police are, you know, they serve the community. People must remember that, and this isn't blaming. I'm just stating what I think to be true. And that is this. Before the police show up at anybody's worst day, there was a number of breakdowns that occurred prior to that ever happening. So the police are going to be the last um, person in the, in, the, uh, in the line. And they're the ones that are at the pointy end of the stick. But if we don't act on observance and we don't, help our, our communities, um, we ourselves potentially are ignoring something that's going to be a crisis later. We may have people in our families that we think, you know what, there's just something about my daughter's boyfriend that really bothers me. But I don't want to upset my daughter, so I'm never going to say anything to her mm-hmm. about it. There may be people that um, know half people in their families that know that they're they're suffering from a mental illness, and but they choose to ignore that mental illness because they don't want to make the person feel whatever about yeah. it. And as we continue, as we ignore things all the way along the way. Um, if we don't take care of each one of these like little pieces, yeah. it ends with a crisis at the end. Yeah. And it's just something very important. And then it's left for the police to basically backstop or clean up. Yeah. And sometimes um, uh, it's the police action that represents the tragedy in the case. But the tragedies often, st- this tragedy often started many years earlier, right? And so um, it's just something important to remember, I think, when we, when, we, when we talk about the police's role, it's there, but forensics on its own is not going to solve a case. 
I mean, from your own experience, you'll, you, you, you've, you've probably saw. You still need talking heads to come to court and stand up and say things. Yeah. You still need that. It's a big part of the investigation. DNA evidence seems irrefutable, but it's definitely not infallible yeah. because you can't date that type of evidence. You can't date fingerprints. You don't know when a fingerprint was laid or not laid down. You know, these are, these are things where we think, well, that's conclusive evidence, but it really isn't, you know, um, CCTV video. How many times have we watched things and thought we were like looking at something that, um, you know, we, we don't, we can't identify the person from the video. Yes. I've we, definitely seen that. We, we see, it. yeah, we, we see it on the, on the news all the time. Videos, if families are waiting us for us to get the perfect video yeah. that's going to identify the crime uh, or the criminal that's or the assailant, um, they could be waiting a very long time. There might be video that exists, but it certainly may not go towards the identification of the person that did it. We still need cooperation from people. It always comes back to people. It always comes back to the community to support the investigations. Yeah. So it's just something it's very important to remember. And if we don't do it, um, it can cause all sorts of problems. Not to take this in a really dark direction, but, you know, I can think of off the top of my head at least three um, child homicides that we were involved in over the years. Or when you go out and you start to talk to the neighbors and things. They say, you know, I thought there was something weird going on there. You know, it didn't make sense that this was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, one day I saw this, you know, and in all of those cases, um, I know it's an uncomfortable thing, but the kind of, it stopped there. Yeah. Right. And months later, no one is surprised to learn that the the little one was murdered. And it's uh, so that's what I mean. We have we have a we have a role in our community to act on our observance. So when we see something that we know is not right, yeah. we have to stand up and say something. One of my questions was when a case goes cold, and I'm assuming that that's the answer. Once you have exhausted those avenues, that information is no longer coming in, then the case becomes cold. Now, does it move to a completely different division then? Or? Uh, currently, right now, um, the, the the investigator that originally was assigned the case will retain the case mm. until they leave the unit. And then when that investigator leaves the unit, they'll basically have a briefing or, you know, debrief the investigation or brief the investigation, however you want to view yeah. that, with our cold case team, who will then bring that file into their into their office. So in the uh, 13 years that I've been investigating homicides, I have two that I have to give into a uh, cold case. Yeah. yeah. That are just eating at you? Uh, well, what, I mean, one of them is, I think, um, to be honest, truth be told, is solved. Uh, just... Uh, offenders uh, fled to a country that I don't have access to. Mm. Um, and the other one is a complete total mystery.
Now you, at some point, you did try to interview Dustin. Is that correct? Yes. After he was now, this was um, so he called nine one one and was brought in. Was it right afterwards, or was it like a couple of days afterwards? Or no, it was that day. It was okay. super. It was super frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Um, Well, you would expect that a guy that's already told everybody what he's done from the communications officer to the um, to the police officers that uh, first had come in contact with him, that he w- it would be easy to elicit the same information in an interview. But yeah. uh, he didn't. And so that was um, frustrating for me, to be honest with you, yeah. because, uh, one, the guys on the team were all riding me pretty hard on that. You know, you confess to everybody but you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, over the years, I've been a relatively accomplished interviewer. Um, I do a lot of interviews now, and I have often have some level of success, but that was different. That was a different one. And uh, when he first came into custody, he was still very... Um, only twice... In the dozen years, of, 13 years I've been investigating murders, have I had people stand outside the door? and Just for your protection? Or yeah. Feeling, yeah. And that was once. Do you know what it was about him that just gave you that feeling? Yeah, he's just still very extremely homicidal. And never suicidal? Well, some, some... And again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know this for sure. Some would say people that are homicidal are, and, su- and people that are suicidal, that there's a lot of the same mm-hmm. underpinnings for both, which I think makes sense. Well, there's so many murder-suicides. Yeah. They, they, they're connected. You, you, they you they can, just can't uh, yeah. separate themselves from the person they kill. And that's why I understand. I, I, but yeah, he was... Um, he was just, uh, he was, he was a different guy that day. And he was, he was, yeah. I mean, people, I, I think we all felt a little bit, I felt certainly a little bit, not that I've ever been really nervous in there, but you could just, there was, just, there was underpinnings there that were not completely. You just hairpin trigger rage or just Yeah, like, that's uh, exactly what it was. Yeah, and that you think is the math. I think it was just. I think he's just still in that whole loop. Mm. Like you're still. He's still in the loop of like. You know, I don't. I think he was arrested not very long after. Uh, oh, it was only hours after he'd actually killed his parents. Yeah, that's why I think he's still in that kind of like loop, where you know he's just extremely unpredictable and. Yeah, I mean, we that's one of the things we'll never understand is the why. I find detective work fascinating because I always wonder, like science, I kind of understand. My um, initial interest was I uh, was in like the medical examiner part of it. I've yeah. always been fascinated with that science. and um, But when you hear, and maybe some of it comes from TV, those things where the detective comes in and they, a crime scene, and they say, well, this looks staged. And I think, how do, how do you know that? Because to me, yeah. I'm like, it just looks like a crime scene. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, you know. Actually, I this is an interesting. I'll give you uh, a, a story. It'll be pretty specific, but it'll be kind of an interesting one. I won't use names, but 
So many moons ago, I was in Edmonton on a conference and the fellows had been called out to uh, death. And when they got there, they went into this basement of this room and the room had all been polyed. All the walls had been polyed. It was in that laundry room. There was a female victim laying there. She had been shot multiple times in the head. And there was no gun. But there was a pair of glasses that she wore. And they were on the washing machine. And a buddy of mine sent the photos of the crime scene up. And I'm like, I looked at it, I'm like, dude, this is, this looks like a suicide. I think this might be a suicide. I mean, it makes no sense because there's no gun. There's no gun and she's been shot multiple times in the head, but everything else about it makes it look like a suicide to me. And it was the glasses. Just that she took them off? And the way they were, they just, it's just a thing. I don't know. I can't really explain it. That feeling. It's that feeling. And you like, look at them and you're like, I've seen that before. I've actually seen that multiple times before. And I just thought, you know, anyways, as the investigation continues and it goes for quite a long time, we finally arrive on a suspect after months of investigation. And in the final analysis, we learn that basically he loved this girl deeply and she loved him. But she was suffering from a number of different illnesses and ailments. Mm. And she asked him to take, his, take her life. And, uh, and so he actually agreed. She made a video, a plea. She, um, she told us that this was okay, that she was consenting to this. And uh, he... Uh, they had experimented ahead of time to see if neighbors could hear what the sounds of gunshots would sound like. And they did a whole bunch of stuff and sort of preparation and plan. And so she chose gunshot? Because I would not make that choice. <laughs> she did. And um, anyways, they had tried one other way mm. and she found it too painful. Okay. And so this was the decision. And so I wasn't completely wrong no but uh he was charged with first degree murder did he get it or did he get manslaughter no he was i think he took um i think there was a a plea deal that was made i think he ended up getting second but that's still a life sentence yeah it's a plan and premeditated taking of life so the the outcome still wasn't you know, ideal for him, but I guess the the moral, to the, the the point I was trying to make is, yeah, it's weird that when you've been to enough things, you can just see when things don't look right. And there's other things that happen at scenes that make you realize that maybe it's staged or that I, a big um, a big one that the medical examiner off often uses is uh, for people that are familiar with what lividity is. It's basically the pooling of blood or fluids in the body after death. 
And so if you die on your back, of course, gravity will pull the fluids to your back and you'll get this sort of pinky, maybe even a little bit of a darker purple kind of uh, color uh, to your back. Mm -hmm. And so with lividity, we can see when bodies have been manipulated from one position to another, mm -hmm. right? The medical examiner can see it, we can see it. So if we find somebody who is has lividity on their back, but they're found on their front, we know they've been moved. Um, and so, and then there's, I mean, there's other things. I mean, when it comes to firearms, there's, um, there's some telltale signs for us to, to be able to determine whether or not it's a self-inflicted uh, wound versus one that's maybe staged to look like a, yeah. Like, again, a self-inflicted wound, but it's actually a homicide. Um, uh, break and enters and, and all of that, you can, I mean, they may be a little bit harder to detect, but if you've been to 100 break and enters, yeah. uh, the one that doesn't look right it might be the one that's, you know, staged. They all seem to, they all sort of follow a pattern. It's, it's really hard to explain, actually. But it's just through experience mm -hmm. over time that you start to see things, just like those glasses. Yeah. For me, those glasses were the giveaway. And, like, I know it defies logic. No firearm shot yeah. multiple times. It defies logic. Yeah. But everything about the scene su suggested this was self-inflicted. Yeah. Well, it sounds like an astute understanding of human behavior and what the normal person does in the order of normal behavior and when there's something out of balance to right. that. Like, so, yeah, I guess normal behavior is if before you go to bed or before something major right. happens, you're going to take your glasses off. Um, whereas if somebody breaks into your house, and you're not going to have that off. I don't think you, yeah, would that's think, right. you would think to take your glasses off that's before right. somebody yeah. shoots you in the head. Yeah. And so it's interesting. It's... Uh, so I think that's the best way to, and I, and I understand it seems interesting, but there, and there's lots of things like, um, there's a whole science behind this, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, you don't see it at every scene. So a drive-by shooting, you're not going to get the same type of behaviors, but other cases you'll see the behavior and it will help explain to you kind of what actually happened inside a scene at different points in time. Mm -hmm. And it's called um, behavior pattern analysis is the new term. Mm -hmm. It used to be called criminal profile. So it's being able to look at something and then make extrapolated guesses on the type of person that might be involved in the crime. So um, an example would be that, you know, you're investigating. Uh, so you find the body of a man. Uh, in a field in August, just on the outskirts of Calgary. And in this field, the crop that's there is, you know, growing up three feet. There's uh, uh, clearly um, vehicle tracks leading out to the body. Uh, July was a really ra uh, rainy month, and so there's a lot of mud out there. And in and around the body, you know, you see these uh, heavy lugged, type footwear impressions, you know, based on what you see around you and around the body, what assumptions could you make 
or what could you extrapolate about the offender before ever even laying eyes on them? Um, one thing would be they likely are driving at like a larger vehicle. Sure. The heavy, heavy lug boots might represent that um, they're in some sort of a labor type work, right? How does this help? Well, as you continue your investigation, you narrow it down to three suspects. One's the town sheriff who drives a police car. One's the teacher who drives a, vet, a Jetta. And one's the um, furnace repair guy that drives a big dually truck, mm -hmm. right? Because we live in a world of limited resource. We still have to investigate the sheriff. We still have to investigate the sure. teacher. But we're going to put the majority of our resource into the investigation of the guy that drives the truck to start off with. That's a furnace repair. Yeah, you're just narrowing the, the field. Of, yeah. yeah. And that's a lot of what we, we look at when we go to scenes. You know, if a door's... Um, been forced to open it obviously means that somebody didn't have a key or was probably not let in you know like there's all these like little little uh little tricks to it all definitely seen your name in a lot of different places and so i did watch the the detectives yes i just watched it sunday night stayed up late watching it because it was actually it was really good really well yeah, done yeah really well done i um and when I first saw that it was going to be reenactment, I thought, oh, no. Because <laughs> a lot of times they're so they're kind of, you know, cheating yeah. bad actors. But no, it was really well done. It was a very, well, I, I plan on doing that case at some point. And then you've written the book, which I'm going to talk to you in a little bit. And I saw that you were also involved with Gems for Gems for the, the trying to get a Hope's Cradle here in Calgary. Did you ever have any luck with that? So, yeah, so... Um... What would you like to talk? You want to talk about gems for a sec? Yeah, if you just want to talk about that really quickly, sure. if, we, if that ever went anywhere. Yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll I'll just explain what gems for gems is. Sure. Um, gems for gems is an organization in the city of Calgary. I'm a volunteer for that organization. I sit as the chair on the board of directors at this point in time. Um, our organization is sort of about the empowerment of women that have uh, survived uh, intimate partner abuse, sure. intimate partner violence. Um, and uh, we have sort of uh, three prongs and now a fourth prong. Um, we offer uh, scholarships to women that uh, might need uh, some uh, tools and some training so that they can become sort of self-sufficient sure. in a fairly short period of time. So we've, uh, we've uh, partnered with one of the aesthetics institutes in uh, in in Calgary to provide that kind of training yeah. and that comes in a, as a beautiful scholarship. So these women can go and work from home uh, after nice. about a year. Uh, we have a program that's a public awareness program where we talk specifically uh, about and raise awareness around uh, domestic abuse. And then um, um, we have a jewelry drive, and that's sort of how gems started. That's why it's called Gems for Gems. What that is is that uh, uh, women that have uh, gently used unwanted jewelry can donate it to our organization. Uh, at Christmas time, uh, it's packaged by a number of our uh, volunteers, and it's given to women in shelters oh. as an acknowledge acknowledgement mm -hmm. uh, by women in the community yeah. to say, we see you, and we're here for you. 
And, um, and that's what GEMS has been. And then um, just over the last couple of years, we uh, started deciding that we were going to try and do some community initiatives. So our first big community initiative was Hope's Cradle. Mm-hmm. And that one is of a lot of interest to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were successful. We have uh, our very first uh, Hope's Cradle was... Uh, was put into the uh, Strathmore Fire Department. Oh, nice. Okay. And so it's at the Strathmore Fire Hall. Um, and we are, you know, currently hoping to have other cradles in other fire halls mm-hmm. uh, in the city of Calgary, but also in sort of the out, outliers in the rural areas as well. Yeah, that would that would be nice. I think it could prevent some tragedies yeah. that have happened in the city. That would be great. And this is, exa- again, this is like, I mean... Um, I don't know that I'm inspired. I don't know that I can inspire somebody, but this is an example of acting on observance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this whole thing kind of started because of a very, very sad case that we had in the city of Calgary mm-hmm. several years ago, where we, on a Christmas Eve, we found an infant deceased in a, in a dumpster. Yeah. And, you know, from that point forward, it's like, well, what could we do? organizationally to give a mom who's in that kind of a desperate spot a different option right and so if it doesn't exist the option doesn't exist exactly so build the option yeah if it never works and we never actually have a baby surrendered into one of our cradles it's okay because at least the community now has an option that's different. Yeah. And I also hope that with that option means that when women do make, and as that option becomes more and more um, available, mm-hmm. when women do make the decision to surrender a child into, say, a really unsafe environment like a garbage bin, mm-hmm. that the consequence to that action is... Um, Maybe heavier than it would normally be, mm-hmm. because it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I know the case you're talking about with, with baby Eve. There, yeah, that it was my first thought when I thought that was the wish. If she'd have had a hopes cradle, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe it still would have. I don't. I don't know. You never that. know. But um, so we have been successful, and we're we're very very proud of it as a as a as an organization. And um, I got involved in it because a family that uh, I was uh, very close to mm-hmm. um, lost a daughter mm-hmm. to uh, intimate partner violence. And uh, they introduced me to the founder yeah. of GEMS and, and uh, we hit it off. And, you know, I had two choices. I can either be okay with just going out every single day, investigating these um, homicides involving domestic Mm-hmm. partners or I can try because I'm so reactive yeah maybe I could do a little bit of preventative yeah and it looks a little different it's volunteering but it's a way of maybe trying to um, limit the number of these types of cases that we see in Canada depending on the year every five or every six days a woman is killed by an intimate partner in Canada. That's crazy. Twenty percent yeah. of girls by the time that they're eighteen will have experienced some form of violence. 
one in three women will report some level of abuse in their lifetime. And 85% of the time, the people that are abusing are men. And so it is also critically important that as men, we be part of the, the, the conversation when it comes to uh, dealing with domestic, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, domestic well, and that's how abuse, I feel about it too. We have to raise, we have to need to raise better men. We and who, we do who don't see a drunk girl and think that she looks like something to have sex with. Instead, right. maybe let let's get her home safe. You know? Right, and that's I mean that it, it really comes back to the that's where men have a huge part to play in this. Like mm-hmm. if we want to stop intimate partner violence and we want to stop intimate partner abuse, we want to do this stuff. If we are the problem mm-hmm. 85% of the time, then we have to be part of the solution. Historically, I don't know that necessarily that has always happened. I think that, um, but I'm hoping that, uh, more men will become involved in this conversation uh, as we move on. And we recognize our own role so that when we're raising our sons, that we're raising them to be strong, um, confident people, but also with a great respect uh, for girls, for women, and that. Where do they get that from? They get it from us. Yeah. Their fathers, their grandfathers, you know, mm-hmm. other uncles, um, we are the ones that are going to influence that behavior in those kids, in those boys, uh, through our own actions and attitudes towards relationships. Mm-hmm. And for fathers that are raising daughters, same thing. We have to, be, we have to absolutely one thousand percent make sure that our daughters we're raising are confident and have a strong belief in themselves you know and know that they will always be supported no matter what right without judgment and that you are a safe place to come back to when they're 15 18 or 25 or 55 that you are going to be a landing spot for them if they ever need that if they're ever one of those one in three Mm Mm-hmm. that needs that support at some point in time. And so if we don't breed that confidence, then, you know, um, some people will stay in these situations for very, very long periods oh, of time. Oh, yeah. I, and I, it's very difficult to get um, women, and it, it's important that they see it for themselves. They need to yeah. be able to do it. Because you saying, like, oh, I don't like your boyfriend or whatever, it doesn't that doesn't do anything. Uh, we've definitely seen that yeah. <laughs> in our uh, in our relationship with Taylor. So, yeah, that is that is huge. And to see those red flags and to trust your instincts and and all those things that uh, I uh, I was talking to a girl last night actually who had been uh, uh, sex trafficked, and uh, while we were talking she gave me this really awesome takeaway and it, cause she got out like she successfully well, left. Uh, she left, uh, her addiction and she left her abuser and, um, she left me with this sort of thought. And I really like it. So I just share it. It's like people don't realize the power they have when you take the power back. So, 
we don't know, we don't realize the power we actually have until we go and take that power back from somebody. Yeah. You know, and when we do, yeah. my goodness. Well, how courageous of her to right. like, like that. She's badass. But right? she, <laughs> but she also comes from a family that supported her. Right. Yeah. Unwaveringly. Yeah. And she recognizes that. And that's, uh, but I, th- I just think that's a really nice piece. This was only part one. Please join me for the second half of our conversation in the next episode. And thank you for listening.